Well, welcome to another edition of our Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friend Jason Ray, who's the CEO of Paperless Post. And uh, both to Jason and those watching, uh, I'm honored that you're here competing with the first presidential debate of 2020. Um, but we're going to focus today on the future of additive manufacturing. Uh, I've known Jason for about a decade now. Um, and as we were young naval officers together thinking about innovation and with the shaggy COVID beard, we've both grown up. Uh, in, in the last couple of years. But Jason, I want to start with where you're at right now. Tell us about paperless parts and what you guys do. Yeah, I thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, awesome, awesome to see you and chat with you. Um, paperless parts, we we work with job shop manufacturers, the custom part manufacturing industry, to bring them modern software solutions that make manufacturing more accessible. And I think that's that's really, you know, when, when folks ask me what we do, it's it's really leveling the playing field for the manufacturing industry. A lot of industries have been quick to adopt software solutions to do their jobs. I mean, I think about us as a SaaS company, we're using software for everything. We have Salesforce, we have Jira, we're using Asana. I mean, gosh, the number of tools we have that make us more efficient. And then I look at manufacturing industry and Maybe they're using three or four pieces of software on a regular basis, Microsoft Excel being one of them. And it just seemed like a space where, you know, we had both seen in the military lack of accessibility to manufacturing resources. I mean, that was the key thing that led me to 3D printing, solve that problem, do it ourselves. But when it came down to it for me, it was, well, we really, we've got one of the most advanced industrial bases in the world. So why are these companies not easily accessible? And it comes back to a lack of modern software. So mm -hmm. we provide modern software solutions to job shop manufacturers. And the goal is to you know, continue to raise the level of manufacturing in the country. Yeah, well, I love that mission. You, know, you mentioned our time in the military. And one of the things that attracted me to you, and I think you to me, is kind of our entrepreneurial innovative mindsets when we were young folks. So I'm going to take you back to your time when you were a junior officer. When we first met, you were a supply officer aboard a minesweeper with our mutual friend, Micah Murphy. You talk about that experience and when the first introduction to 3D printing was for you? Oh, my goodness. I was, yeah, I've worked with therapists on this PTSD. <laughs> um, so we'll see if, I can, see if I can go back there in my mind. I mean, so the, the biggest challenge that I faced on the minesweeper was what in a lot of supply chain logistician circles is called tail chase. And it's a situation where we end up chasing our own tails because of funding ebbs and floods. And, you know, the minesweepers were a great example of that. It was a platform that made it about 25 years, wasn't really supposed to go on longer than that, but littoral combat ship was delayed. And right about the time I got to the mine minesweepers, we had backlogs of orders and parts that couldn't be purchased millions of dollars. And very quickly, the spigot got turned on on the ship. And so I showed up as the supply officer there. I'm an ensign. I, you know, been through supply corps training. It was great. I, I'll never forget. I walk onto the ship the first time. And I, this is, I mean, I've been on a ship before, but nothing, nothing like this. And I walk into the stateroom and our chief engineer is, you know, sitting there in his tidy whiteies, shaving his head with a buck knife. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, welcome to the Navy. This is going to be great. And I walk through the, you know, he, he tells me which rack is mine. And I walk through and, you know, one of our HTs is pretty much arm deep in the toilet, 
comes mm-hmm. out and wipes the sweat off of his face with a bare hand and tries to shake my hand. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, this is going to be like, – this is not what I had thought it was. So, you know, fast forward, now it's my job to go take huge budget because we got dropped with, I think it was like $4 million my first mm-hmm. year, which was a huge budget for the Minesweepers to go get mission ready. And we were quickly informed that over the next 24 months, we were going to go through an in-serve, which, you know, I'm not sure if people understand what that is that are listening, but if you haven't been through one, it's basically an inspection of the ship that helps you determine whether or not the ship is in still fighting condition that it was once in when the ship was first commissioned. And they try to make sure that everything is as it should be, which is a really funny statement when you're dealing with a wooden ship that every single one of them was just a little bit different. Yep. And so here I am trying to order parts from our stock system. And we spent about three months in San Diego. And then we went out to Bahrain on a rotational crew. And I'm ordering parts out for these ships in Bahrain. And I'm seeing 250 days, 300 days, massive, massive lead times. And I am, I'm trying to remember the exact situation, but we had, we basically had like a gas cap that had kept us from going underway. I mean, it was something so simple Mm -hmm. and it had actually gotten caught up in Bahraini customs Mm -hmm. and I'm just getting beat up left and right as the suppo like chop, where's my, you know, where are my parts? You know, I mean, it was, it was nonstop. And of course, like I have no control over Bahraini customs. So, you know, doing the fire drill, calling, calling as many people as I can calling the base. And I ended up having to wait for this part to come out. And so I'm reading this book, Abundance, by Peter Diamandis, and that yep. was the first time I got exposed to 3D printing. Yep. And he talked about it as one of the transformational technologies that was going to come to fruition and you know, was going to accelerate dramatically, which we've seen um, you know, over the past 10 years or so. I mean, the technology has been around for 40 years, but you know, very much accelerated over the past 10 years as patents have expired and software has gotten better. But that was the first exposure I got to it. So one of the things I love about you is you kind of see an idea and run toward it, you know, after you left the military, obviously starting your own company. But in this instance, you read that part of the book and you immediately took action. So talk to us about how you helped drive additive manufacturing in the Navy and how you thought about taking that Peter Diamandis' conception of abundance and applying it to you as a supply officer of a, of a very minor minesweeper in the middle of the Persian Gulf. I think I was actually pretty lucky because I was more outspoken than I should have been as a junior officer. I kind of got to do the ensign shrug a few times, <laughs> like more than an ensign should. Yeah. Um, but I just kind of, I I'd written a couple articles that had gotten seen by captains and a few folks in the Navy that really decided that it wasn't me being negative, but more me wanting to help solve the problem. And I was very lucky to get selected to go work with Captain Futcher at OpNav. Um, I believe he's leading Naval X right now, or is one of the leaders at Naval X, which is awesome. Um, And I went from the minesweeper to buying missiles from Raytheon to actually getting pulled from that position to go work at OpNav N41, um, which ended up being a really cool track for me. I, I was very fortunate. I can't say enough about the folks that I've worked with, you know, whether it was Mike on the ship, 
or awesome people like uh, Captain Brett Sturgis, who was at NAPSI, really took good care of me. Captain Futcher, Admiral Cullum. I mean, I, I worked with fantastic people. I was really lucky um, that they all kind of let me, they gave me enough rope to go potentially hang myself with. And yeah. uh, that's that's how I ended up working on those projects. And, you know, initially it was, a lot of it was like a collateral duty. Yeah, you know, it wasn't even formalized, and then and then it started to become a thing. It was like innovation lead, and then it was, you know, additive manufacturing and innovation. And we started to then step back and say, well, it's not additive; it's all manufacturing technology. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky; I got to go to some really amazing places. Like you wouldn't think Aberdeen Proving Ground, and think manufacturing but they have an unbelievable manufacturing facility there. And the army's done amazing things with their shop in a box and bringing technology. And I was really fortunate because my last year on the Minesweeper, we had an in-serve and the, the, the Ron basically got us Connex boxes with machine shops inside of them mm-hmm. to go and do repairing our pipes and welding and like essentially bringing back the modern MR type capabilities to the ships and which yep. it was incredible for a minesweeper that you know we were lucky if we could weld something on the ship ourselves you know yeah, i think you know one of the unheralded stories of the the past 20 years post 9 11 and our time in iraq and afghanistan there are a lot of things to talk about criticized potentially but it's this maker culture that's kind of emerged um among the different services and you know as you know working with me on print the fleet with our CNO rapid innovation project to kind of bring 3D printers to the waterfront and one of the first instantiations. Can you talk about, you mentioned, you know, N41, and for those who don't know, that's, uh, N is an ENCODE in the military system, uh, in the Navy, and the four is the logistics department, and N41 was the one responsible for this 3D printing conception. And to your point, guys like Admiral Cullum just embraced this, embraced this wholeheartedly and like dove all in to figure out how we can make it work. What, what was the the Navy in particular's view of added manufacturing and how did you see it evolve as you were in, in that organization? Yeah, I remember my first week and they were like, we we're going to print F-18 parts on an aircraft carrier. And I was like, oh my gosh, we got a lot of work to do. Like <laughs> this is going to be, he's going to be so upset. And I remember seeing a brief that had F-18 and a pizza like side by side and it's like we're going to print food and we're going to print jet parts and this is the future of everything that we do sustainment and i'm like oh my god i'm like this is great that they've really drank this kool-aid but it's also really bad because if and the thing that i think is is really challenging is if we set ourselves up for failure and we say that we're going to do all these things and then we don't achieve it these projects get cast aside rather than setting the expectation so i think you know i think companies that we worked with while in the Navy. I know that I know Deloitte was fairly instrumental in in working with, you know, OpNav. And I think that whole process of level setting, like what's the real expectation? We were able to get some really interesting projects funded. So one of them was a project with um, a consulting company that we went out and we went and we looked at the storerooms on ships. And we said, hypothetically, if we apply a little bit of logic to this, what could be 3D printed? They said, can we make this a virtual storeroom? Mm-hmm. It was such an interesting question and a fun study to work on. But at the end of the day, it was like 1% of the parts. 
And the question was like, well, why? Why would we use 3D printing for this 1% of the parts where, you know, these are all things that if they're stocked on the ship, there's a really good chance we can get them anytime we need them. We might as well just stock them because we don't want to wait eight hours to print something. So yeah. the reality really started, we went from, and it, it, it very much mirrored the Gartner hype cycle. Mm. And we were right in the Gartner hype cycle of like 2014, yeah. 13, 14, 15. And now we're just starting to get back to, okay, there's some real merit here in how we can leverage this technology, but it's taken a lot of level setting. And the folks at NAVC and NAVAIR have done a phenomenal job. I mean, they they took what the some of what the fantasy was and they brought the reality to it. And I think one of the biggest things that we possibly could have done as a service is NAMT, you know, the Naval Additive Manufacturing Technology Interchange. I mean, say that 10 times fast. Um, but it was, you know, it's really funny. I actually just got a text from Jim Pluta oh, really? asking if I could speak at NAMT. And I was like, Jim, what am I going to talk about? And he's like, I don't know. It'll be fun. Like, come talk to us. So, um, but that bringing all of these people together and realizing one of the first projects that, that I did when I got to OpNav was find me every 3D printing asset. Hmm. I said, okay. And it was, it was pretty much like, uh, you need to have this done in a week. And yeah. I'm like, wow, like every single 3D printer in the military, how are we even going to approach this? And it turned out that it was actually fairly simple to go into our contracts database run the cage codes from any company that could have ever sold a 3D printer mm -hmm. to the military. And we pulled about 5,000 contracts down. And then in about a week, we went through every single one of those contracts and we built a digital map of the entire Department of Defense. And we wow. realized that additive manufacturing technology was everywhere. I mean, I remember calling some of the sub bases and asking about additive manufacturing and like, hey, you know, I see you've got this EOS printer. And they're like, what EOS printer? Who are you <laughs> calling from? They're like, you're not taking this away. Ensign, or I was a lieutenant at the time, like, lieutenant, go away. Like, <laughs> click. You know, and eventually it had to turn into a phone call of like, I'm calling from the CNO's office and we just want to make sure that this is actually where you say it is. And I mean, we uncovered some facilities that had printed tens of thousands of parts. Yeah. And that really started to help us tell the narrative of what the art of possible was and where this technology could be applied. Um, and I think I think there's a lot of really great people that are still demystifying some of the what we see in marketing hype. I mean, my gosh, the number of times I see 3D printing being talked about in the news, Vice. Have you, when was the last time you saw the latest advancement in five axis machining and automated programming? I mean, you don't ever see that, but that is incredible. That's like a game changer for manufacturing technology. And you don't read about that ever. Most yeah. people can't even tell you what a CNC machine is. Right. Absolutely. So you, you spent time in the military, obviously, and did a lot of great work. And then you decided to, to transition and, and do something else. But you still have this core um, of additive manufacturing at, at, at its heart. Walk us through that transition and how you got to paperless parts. Like, what, what was that like? Yeah, I was I was very, very fortunate to have um, several admirals that I worked with that t gave me the courage to go try to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew I wanted to build a company. I wanted to have a big impact. I wanted to help solve this problem. And initially, you know, my gut reaction is always go solve it myself. You know, like, let me go try to solve it 
I'll build the biggest defense contractor and we'll just make all the parts for the military. And, you know, we'll bring in 3D printing technology and all this technology that I learned about. And so I went out and I raised a search fund, traditional search fund model, Stanford Business School, um, basically downloaded their docs, read all of it. And was like, all right, well, this, I can make this work. And uh, I teamed up with a retired two-star general and a Babson professor and a private equity guy. And I was very, very fortunate that my current co-founder, after a little bit of peppering on LinkedIn, um, decided to sit on my advisory board and invest in my search fund. So I had these four advisors that we met you know, every couple months. And I was out searching to buy a platform, a manufacturing business that was doing anywhere from five to 15 million in revenue. And I said, if I buy a company like this, we're going to have existing, you know, we'll have existing business. Sorry, Slack is going off. Um, We'll have some existing business. We'll have customers. I can keep that ship sailing because I know it takes two to five years to get government contracts, but we'll go in, we'll clean it up. It'll be amazing. And, you know, we'll build the next like SpaceX, but for government contracting. So that was the vision. And reality started to set in about 30 shop visits in. So I visited about a hundred shops in a seven month period of time. They were just driving out to them, flying Mm -hmm. out to them, getting in the car, going and just touring, talking to owners. And the reality of it was that these businesses were like very underserved by software. And I was in no way the right person to step in for a 30-year shop owner who had probably a good bit of customer concentration, owned a majority of the relationships, and they were a key cog in the wheel that I wasn't going to be able to replace. I'm not a mechanical engineer. I'm an econ guy. And I didn't have enough gas in the tank to be able to buy a big enough business where the owner had almost replaced themselves. And so once when push came to shove, we got really close on about three of these companies. And I couldn't pull the trigger because I don't like putting investor money at risk. I really like betting on things that I know are never going to change, which is why I think paperless parts is such a compelling business. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to ensure our investors a return. So I gave the money back and I walked away and I went and got my butt kicked in a McKinsey interview. And I was like, <laughs> well, I was like, this is interesting. And I went to Jay Jacobs, who was my co-founder and Jay actually asked me just to write up a summary of what we had learned. At the time, Jay was running Rapid Manufacturing, which was the world's largest prototype sheet metal shop, second largest prototype CNC machine shop. They were making about 33,000 unique components a year with 350 employees and actually ended up selling the company in 2017 to Proto Labs. Hmm. So Jay, at the time, this is 2016, middle of 2016, said to me, Will you please just write this up? I think I think we've discovered something, but let's let's write this up. And essentially what emerged was the initial inklings of paperless parts. And I had, you know, I presented this business plan to Jay and I said, look, you know, we need to come up with a way to make manufacturing more accessible, whether that's a marketplace or you know, some sort of instant pricing. We found that that friction was in being able to get pricing back. That was like the key long pole in the tent. Manufacturers didn't want to spend hours to quote work where the cost of quoting it was going to be less than the quantity you were buying. 
you know, in the military, what do we need? Five of something, right. You know, not a single defense contractor even wants to respond to that. Mm -hmm. The amount of time and admin it takes, the costs are going to be 10 times as expensive for those parts. So I think we really, we identified something and Jay was first believer and he funded the company from the beginning and sold the house in Virginia, moved up to Boston and we started paperless parts. You know, what I love about that story is, you know, the search fund model, you know, was came to maturity, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, tried and true method, but in your search, because it was so focused, you, you really uncovered a market need and then we're able to build a business around it. And then, you know, straight to the lead startup playbook is go out and talk to customers. You almost did it in, in the reverse way. Um, but it turned out to be incredibly effective. And, you know, I wonder if there's a model there to, to emulate. You know, I, I've talked to several Babson grads that are doing search funds, and mm -hmm. I was really lucky. I had a professor named John Halal, and John recommended a focused search. He said, focus on the things that you're really good at yeah. and the things that you're passionate about, because there's this general, you know, I'm going to go buy a business that's doing two and a half million in EBITDA or one and a half million in EBITDA that's, you know, got really solid numbers and, you know, you, the average search fund deck and you look at it and you just kind of smile because you know that the businesses that are for sale for what you're willing to pay are not there. You know, and you start to pay, you start to pick out these skeletons out of the closet. And you're like, oh my God, what? This is not what I thought it was. Like, why is your home edition on your financials? Like, this is, <laughs> we saw, saw some incredible things. Um, but I, I really do think that that helped me understand our market in a way that allowed us to move quickly once we got into paperless parts. And I say quickly, we've been working on this for almost four years now. And mm. I'm still learning. Like, you can't, I don't think the learning ever stops. Every single yep. manufacturer that we've come into is unique. They have all mm -hmm. unique needs. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we ran up against because in the beginning, I was looking at a lot of job shops that were in a specific revenue range that fit a certain mold. And I said, look, if we build the product this way, it's going to work for these people. And then we onboarded 10 customers and the 11th and then the 12th was like, wait a second, what about this? And the 13th was like, well, you need to do this and this. And the 14th was like, well, this and this and this. And we're like, wait a second, we need to go completely scrap this. So we tore our whole platform down after building it. And we built it back up with the level of flexibility of Microsoft Excel. Hmm. It's got the power of Python and geometric analysis coming from our CAD system that we've built into the back of our platform. And it's not really a CAD system. It's more of a geometric analysis system. But we've combined all those things together to give job shops almost infinite flexibility, which I will say has a double edge to that sword. Mm -hmm. You know, because with infinite flexibility, there lacks structure, which means you have to spend a lot of time making sure that if something does break, you can fix it. So it, it's I, I'm very fortunate today that we've had some awesome customers that have been very successful with our product. Um, but we've we've taken they've taken a lot of bumps with us. Yeah. So when you're working with the job shops, what are the, the main tools that they're using? I mentioned 3D printing, but I'd imagine they're still using the CNCs and the five axis tools. What What is like the, the, the core of a job shop in America that look like today? It's a saw. So they're going to cut the metal bars into cubes mm -hmm. or the rods into lengths of rod. They're, are, they're using vices and fixtures, clamps inside of a CNC machine. 
and they're using those to produce their parts. They're, the CNC machine has cutting tools, which look very similar to drill bits, flat drill bits, different shape drill bits. There's probably, depending on what the machine shop is doing and what type of work they're doing, there's probably some level of a CMM, so a measuring machine, to go in and do QA on the part. There might be a wire EDM if you have to do very specific tolerances or if you have to make some very specific types of features and parts that fit together well, especially if you're doing any kind of um, injection molded tooling. And then maybe you have a part washing machine, but that's about it. And you'll typically see a CNC mill, whether it's a vertical or horizontal mill, and you'll see a lathe and you'll have a bunch mm -hmm. of them. And what's interesting is a lot of these job shops, the, the biggest thing that we preach is standardization because a lot mm -hmm. of job shops, they only have as much money. It's not like working with a startup where you get venture backed and you have 10 million weight in your hammer to go like, I'm going to go spend money on this. They don't do that. They grow these businesses very organically. So the sexiest CNC machine 10 years ago Three years after that, so seven years ago, wasn't the sexiest. And that's when they had money to buy a new one. So you'll have an Okuma and you'll have a Mazak and you'll have a Haas. And it looks like a showroom almost of mm -hmm. the sexiest technology over the last 20 years. But the mm -hmm. problem is none of this technology is the same. So you end up with a single point of failure where one operator knows how to operate one machine, who knows how to work on one machine. And you end up in a really bad position. Whereas at a company like Rapid, Jay truly bought into the Southwest model. So he went and bought all the exact same Haas machines. Mm. And it was easy. Everyone knew how to run them. Everyone knew how to fix them. Or he had a couple of people that knew how to fix them really well. And he never had to worry about downtime. Because adding another machine, as long as he standardized and he knew what their capabilities were, he could communicate that to customers and they could move very fast. Yep. So given that, what was what was the problem you noticed and what's the specific niche that you guys fill to help those job shops be more effective? So I find that often in the there's there's this connection point between the buyer of the product who's coming out and requesting a quote and the manufacturer who's doing the quoting. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I like to invest in things that aren't going to change. There's always going to be that interaction point between buyer and seller. And yep. so what I found is that often shops end up with very tight customer concentration, meaning they work with one or two companies and they have a high risk. You know, if one company is in the wildfires out in California, well, you might lose 50% of your business as a result of that. And that makes these businesses very risky to buy. What I found that the reason behind that is that a lot of times the job shops are very slow to quote the new customers that are coming in. And they're very slow to mm. quote the new work. And quoting, there's an enormous amount of risk because what's happened is as engineering tools, so let's take a company like Boeing, for example. They use the latest and greatest, and some of their engineers might argue with me, but they use some pretty high-tech CAD tools mm -hmm. to design their component components. Right. Well, as the degrees of freedom have increased in CAD, so has the complexity of the parts they're designing. Yep. Well, what ends up happening, though, is they're taking that part they've designed in 3D space. They're putting it onto a 2D drawing. 
and they're sending a PDF drawing to the manufacturer who now has to basically interpret a 2D into 3D. It is an inferior form of communication between those two parties. Yeah. And the problem that we solve is leveling that playing field. We put it on the same playing field so our manufacturers can now view the 3D model, interact with it, and extract the metadata from that 3D model. So whereas it becomes a science project for quoting with the old method, this new method drives a lot of automation using the core premise that in manufacturing, geometry drives everything. And that is what our whole company is built around, is an understanding that you can leverage the geometry and whatever you're making. It dictates so much. What volume of material do you need? How much material is being removed or added? What are the spacing for different drill bits? You know, how do these parts fit together? How does it get set up and fixtured in the machine? What angles do you need to use? The geometry drives all of those decisions. So before paperless parts, the tail really wagged the dog. And what I mean there is in a lot of cases, ERP systems use the quote to drive the ERP system. You're putting in times, you're putting in all the routing steps because you're basically doing resource planning in the quoting process. Well, that is not what the goal of quoting is. The goal of quoting is not to figure out how to efficiently make the part. The goal of quoting is to, with the least amount of effort, return a price to a customer that that customer is willing to pay that is profitable for your business. That's right. it. So I find, and I've given this talk so many times, I can do it in my sleep and I love it. It's one of my favorite topics, but we talk about over-engineering quotes mm -hmm. because you don't need to engineer a quote. You know, costing is a science, very much a science, but pricing is an art form. Mm -hmm. There's so much more that goes into pricing than the metal we ship. And you wonder why job shops don't have enough money to reinvest in new tools. It's because they're costing. They're basically doing cost plus and they're not getting paid for lead time. They're not getting paid for any of the other value adds. Like, oh, you need me to expedite these? Sure, I'll run an overtime shift. Okay, but get paid for it. Yeah. So that you actually can afford that overtime shift and afford to pay those people. So many shop owners I talk to can't get from one shift to two shifts. It's like a quantum mm -hmm. leap. And I'm like, well, what are you paying the what are you paying the guys that are gonna be sitting in your shop while you're sleeping? And they're like, oh, you know, it's less than the day side. And it's like, guys, that's not that doesn't work. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's not gonna work. Yeah, yeah. Like I stood watch on a minesweeper from midnight to 7 a.m. And it's awful. Like you need, if I had known, I would have asked for more money, but that, that doesn't work. And if they had that money, they would be able to do it. And that's what we see. So our customers use our software. Our software automates about 80% of that quoting process mm -hmm. so that the very skilled people can come in and kind of just tweak the knobs and drive that forward, drive those pricing to be accurate. Yeah. I love that. You know the the job uh, the job shops seem to be one of those industries that you know kind of forgotten about in the American narrative and yet are so critical to our infrastructure. And what's interesting is I've kind of found myself working with those industries with my current job. You know the oil pipelines and the railroads, kind of the arteries of our society. That you know, the lights you have on right now are probably being fed by some pipeline driving a natural gas power plant. That you don't think about, but the guys in the front lines doing the maintenance and like making sure there's no leaks, like it is a Herculean and very difficult task that no one talks about. What's your view of the future of like this small scale manufacturing in America? 
And are the trades sufficient to develop the workforce is necessary to keep providing these materials that there's still demand for? Like, how do you see that workforce coming up to, to bolster this really critical part of our society? It's really tough. Um, you know, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I've been in this industry much, much less amount of time, you know, than a majority, a lot, a lot of people that are much smarter than I am. So I'll give you my opinion on it. Um, I think we have an aging workforce in manufacturing today. A lot of the estimators we work with are 50s plus. And it's a critical gap because the estimators are the most experienced people in a lot of cases in the shop because you want someone who's seen everything so they know like, oh, that's going to bite us. Oh, like we got to make sure we increase the price for that because when we made that seven years ago, that really bit us. And they had this like incredible store of tribal knowledge in their heads. Now, there's a few things that we really need to do as a country. One is we need to recognize that one, manufacturing is very sexy. So we got to recognize that. And right now is the colleges, the four-year degree programs have done a phenomenal job at making that seem like a uh, proxy for success in life. And that has really hurt the trade programs. Mm -hmm. And that's just marketing. I mean, everybody, when I went to, when I went to school, everybody wanted to be a financial advisor. Right. Everyone wanted to be in finance and we're going to go to Wall Street and do what the movies, it's going to look like just like the movies. And now tech is doing the same thing. Oh, we want to go work at Facebook or Google or Apple. And we continue to take these trades that are not super sexy in the public eye and they're kind of forgotten about. Well, I look at what they do at the robotics companies and how that's seen as super sexy. When you're running a CNC machine, you are telling a robot how to basically cut metal to the thickness of a hair off of a part. And that is sexy. I mean, that is really, really cool. And some of these machines are absolutely incredible. So I think there's going to need to be a couple of approaches. But I think COVID and the, the pandemic really, it identified the need for the ability to manufacture at scale, mm. which is something that I think we've... I wouldn't say we've lost entirely as a country, but if you ask anybody that works in a mold and dye shop, that is a black art. Mm -hmm. It very much is a black art today. And they, they will say, you know, this is the kind of thing where four or five people in our shop, they know something that'll make this mold work the right way. And that's not in a computer program anywhere. Yep. And that is really scary because yeah. I look at what ended up happening with PPE. And I thought the additive community did a phenomenal job with marketing, as we always do. And I'll say we, because you know everyone's trying to use that for marketing. Um, but when you look at the 3D printer, and I am a big fan of figuring out the numbers, because numbers aren't going to lie. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of the most efficient additive technology today, which is arguably HP's technology, the multi-jet fusion machine, and I will take my sponsorship endorsements um, via Venmo. <laughs> yeah. um, but HP, they've done a great job. They've made a machine that can print really fast, but that machine still only makes about 250 units a day of PPE. Yeah. Whereas you got some students down in Georgia who built an injection mold and they can make 250,000 a week. Mm -hmm. That scale from students is unreal. 
So when you look at what the big difference is between us and places like China, it's that scale. Like, can you make 50 million of something in a month? That's where I think our country needs to get back to is that ability to produce not only the custom precision, five, 10, 500 part lots, but we got to be able to turn out and go ramp up and produce 50 million of something because we're going to end up in situations where we need it. Well, that's a a really important point. And you mentioned COVID and, you know, in the ratio of the vaccine right now and, you know, weeks, months, whatever, a vaccine will likely happen. I don't know what the timeline is, but I was talking to someone who was helping running a vaccine program. He said, you know what? The, the biggest bottleneck in distributing these vaccines are actually the glass vials that they have to put the stuff in and keep it frozen. We do not have the manufacturing capability in the U.S. to produce enough of these glass vials to actually inoculate the entire population. And it's because we've outsourced to China or other countries for you know valid business reasons. But there is a very real cost of that when it comes to indigenous and organic uh, capabilities when you do face a crisis. Because, you know, say China or Russia or France or, you know, Germany comes up with the vaccine first, they are going to keep those glass vial population in their own country to serve that population. And we are then shut out from that. And so to your point about getting manufacturing back in the U.S., you know, as much as a free trader and, and free market guy as I am, you know, there are, there are real national security and valid arguments to be made for having a, a rapid manufacturing capability that can do things at scale that have deep impact in our society. And, you know, we're talking about the workforce. You know, I think about my grandfather, um, who was just a phenomenal woodworker. I mean, my, my five and three-year-old sons play with the toys that he made 20 years ago, blocks and airplanes and things just with a phenomenal level of craftsmanship from disease riddled and, and torn down trees and siding from houses. Like he built an entire playhouse in our backyard out of scrap wood that he got from construction sites. Like that is an amazing skill, but because working with your hands is now viewed as, you know, a sub um, career, you know, we have deprioritized that as a society. And I'll be honest as a, as a 38 year old man, like there are days when I yearn to work with my hands and something meaningful. Like I love mowing the lawn growing up. Like it was just a very tangible and action, but you know, my job and my role is to be in the intellectual field and maybe it is, but like there's something about working with hands and building something that just gives you a deep sense of satisfaction. And I can't help but think that we're, we've lost some of that in our society. There's something, I hope it comes full circle because you know, they, I hear that we're a generation of instant gratification and that is, that is the best way to have instant gratification. Like if you stand in front of a CNC machine that you programmed that produces a part that's going to go fly on an airplane. I mean, I think that's the single biggest thing that this business has changed in my brain is when I, it's the way I look at the world. You know, I walk onto an airplane, I can see, I know exactly how the pieces of the door were made. I understand how and where these parts came from or how difficult something was, or I'll look at the seat and I'm trying to understand why they designed something the way they did, because I know how difficult that would be to produce at scale. And it's really, really, it's, it's opened my eyes to that. I think what it's going to take, because manufacturing technology, 
is experiencing what I think a lot of hardware has experienced as a result of increased software is now there's just this massive acceleration in manufacturing technology. I think 3D printing went through the same thing. So, you know, I remember when I bought an Ultimaker 3D printer in 2012. Mm -hmm. It used to, it would take 50 minutes to slice the part. <laughs> Literally, it would take an hour to sit there and slice the part. I'd be watching it. And I'm like, oh, we're almost ready to print. And then I'd print it. And then it would print for like 27 hours and end up big pile of spaghetti. <laughs> it is disgusting. Um, you know, Ultimaker's gotten much better since the days of the wooden printers. Yeah. But a year later, it took 50 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I just watched... Um, I just watched a Netflix documentary that talked about how the pace of technological development in software and computing power has increased almost a trillion times since the 1970s. That is going to drive enormous, enormous efficiencies in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I've seen this in the last four years, I would go talk to VCs and they manufacturing was like, oh, gonna take forever, not interesting. We're not, we're not, that's not our that's not our vertical. And now I get emails all week from VCs. They're, you know, oh, we're you know, we're really focused on the manufacturing and the industrial space. So there's mm -hmm. a lens being turned on this industry, and it's going to take a substantial amount of capital, whether it's government or whether it's private, but it's these are not businesses where you can limp in. Yeah. Like each machine is half a million bucks. Like you need to go spend serious money to get up to speed and build parts at scale that allow you to be successful. I mean, we're talking $100 million investments in some of these businesses, mm -hmm. but making those investments, I think will put us right on par with foreign countries in the way we produce parts. So many people are like, oh, the cost of labor is so much lower. That's really not where it is. If you break down all the costs associated with producing something and you really look at it, yeah, the labor is a piece of it. But what about the raw material costs? Let's look at our raw material supply chains. How efficient are those? You know, is the metal coming out of the ground and then being touched eight times before it ends up at the job shop? What does that do to the price? Yeah. Well, you know, you raised a very good point that, you know, the, the, the future is not all bleak for manufacturing. And I think I even got into that though 10 minutes ago. Um, but I read something fascinating in that, you know, the average rate of productivity growth in manufacturing in the past 30 years has been like, you know, 3.5%. And in growth around from our trust society is 2%. And so that 1.5% compounded over time means that productivity has gone through the roof in America, even as we've outsourced. And while jobs have plummeted, to your point, our manufacturing productivity actually is very high in certain sectors. And so leveraging technology to make it even more robust actually is a bright future in America. Um, and so I want to like I want to look to the future and maybe bring us back to the original conceit of this conversation about heavy manufacturing. You mentioned the, the Alta printer, but like in 2020, what is the state of additive manufacturing in America right now, or even globally? What are the technologies that are emerging and how are they trying to shape that landscape? So I think people are doing incredible things in additive manufacturing. It is still very, very small compared to the rest of the market. So if additive manufacturing is 1% of the manufacturing market, 
they are 99% of the PR and 1% of the actual market size. So you have a lot of companies doing really, really cool things, but they're looking at making shoes, you know, or they're, they, they found one widget that happens to be the perfect widget to apply the technology to, and they're doing that with that widget. And I think some companies, to talk about investment, some companies are doing amazing things with additive manufacturing. They've been able to leapfrog, but I mean, GE's spent $2 billion buying the leading 3D printing companies to now basically own that and develop it. So, I mean, a lot of the case studies for success with additive that you see are coming out of a company that was able to put $2 billion into something. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of money. It's it's a ton of money. Yeah. On average, though, where I see additive being really impactful is one with tooling. I still think that there's a really awesome use case for printing and producing great tooling. And a CNC machine is nothing if you can't hold the part. So work holding, if I can't clamp onto that part somehow, there's no way you can produce that other side of the part when you have to flip that thing back over. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of potential with that just in and of itself for being a technology that supports the rest of the supply chain. I do think that going forward, we'll see more and more parts designed with additive in mind. Mm -hmm. You've got some cool technologies coming out of companies like Desktop Metal. Um, you've got some great technologies coming out of, um, there's there's uh, Carbon, Carbon 3D. They're doing awesome polymer technologies. HP is a huge dominant player in this space. So there's definitely the use of the technology but compared to manufacturing as a whole, if I want to produce anything at scale, I'm going to go get make injection molds. Mm -hmm. Like it just makes sense to do that. Yeah. Like the 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 speed, like I said, 250 a day to 250,000. I mean, you that's you can't that's immeasurable the orders of magnitude faster that you can produce things. Mm -hmm. There's going to be like, a lot of people thought that we would move in the direction of highly customizable customized things that were special to you. So the dental industry has done awesome with 3D. Hearing aids has done awesome with 3D. Anything that has to be custom to you. Now they're looking at custom orthotics and shoes and that's great, but we're going to run out of human custom things that are efficient to produce via additive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's great to see Le Mans cars using additive and NASCARs using additive, but you know, if Tesla needs to put out 100,000 cars a year or 500,000 cars a year or a million, it's going to be really tough. You're going to need a ton of 3D printers to produce those components. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's not possible, but there's a trade-off there. We don't need to use a sledgehammer to drive a thumbtack. CNC machines are wicked efficient. Mm -hmm. Buying aluminum block is not that expensive. Yeah. And if I can go and I can carve a part out of an aluminum block in 11 minutes, vice, I can put this into a 3D printer and it prints over an hour. There's no, there's no comparison. The powdered metal is drastically more expensive to make. Now, we've done a great job as a country at figuring out how to produce these raw materials. There are some amazing companies out there powder, making powdered metals at a much greater efficiency. When we were in the Navy, it was like 5% of every batch. I talked to a guy last week and he said they're at 60%. I mean, that's 
that's huge. It used to be 5% and the rest got sold off to the coding industries, yeah. you know, or it got re reproduced. So we're seeing like drastic drops in the cost, but it still takes an enormous amount of energy to turn metal into powder. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, there's no getting around that. Yeah. I mean, something that comes to mind for me is there was all this hype around made in space, which again, they've done a phenomenal job in putting a printer on the International Space Station. And when they did it, there was a lot of hoopla about it. And they printed something cool, but I've never heard about it since. And maybe, maybe they're just printing everything, but they I would imagine required. that they require, okay. Yep. But like even, you know, Elon Musk talks about the fact that he's gonna go to Mars and use 3D printers to produce the things on Mars. Maybe that's the long home intent now for Mars, like given the, the development of the technology, just it's always five years or 10 years away. You know, it, it comes back to the inputs. Mm -hmm. What what is what is being printed? You know, if it's we're talking about habitats on Mars, probably that's probably not a bad use case for it. I mean, if I'm taking the rock, putting it together and there happens to be some liquid there that you can use. Great produce big walls and structures like that's not a bad idea would it be easier to just use the you know use the barricades that the cbs use and shovel the crap in there and build the walls that way you know that, right. maybe that's easier <laughs> um you know it's, it's a sexy idea we're going to print with ice and build an igloo around a inflatable habitat i mean that was that won the nasa award for the mars habitat yeah. all that stuff is great it's really interesting but Again, practice, is it needed or is there a more efficient way? I would take a CNC machine over a 3D printer every single day and an operator. Mm -hmm. And I think we're starting to get to a point of where technology, CNC machines are complex because of the infinite variability. Mm. And so what I mean by that is a 3D printer is going to run and maybe there's like a speed that the laser moves at or there's a power of the laser, but there are a few variables that you can control and dial in. But when I start using a CNC machine, not only do I have what drill bit I choose or end mill or cutting tool, and there's hundreds of thousands of different choices that yep. all cut differently, but what am I putting that into? So there's a holder for it. And the rigidity of that holder is going to determine the inflection and the vibration in the tool and how that tool functions. What speed am I going to run it at? So how fast am I going to rotate that thing? And what what's my feed? Am I going to just drive it into the metal? Am I going to just kind of go back and forth and take a little bit off the top? Am I going to do some kind of helo boring technology? Am I, you know, is my goal tool conservation? Is my goal to just hog out chips as much as possible and get the part made? There's, um, there's infinite, infinite possibilities in terms of strategies there. And I think we end up in this analysis paralysis state where it makes it very complex. And we feel like we have to have this person who's a scientist figure out, okay, this is like the best free tool to make art. Reality, that that lost efficiency in that programming time, like instead of spending eight hours on it, like, yeah, add five minutes to the runtime because you can go buy machines. You just can't get that skilled person. Mm -hmm. I think the future of manufacturing a lot of it lies in the automation of CAM. Mm. And so say more about that for those working with CAM. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's two areas. There's CAM, automation of CAM, meaning computer-aided manufacturing, which is a computer figuring out what the most optimal way is to cut a part on a specific machine. But in order for that to be possible, what we need to solve is work holding. And this is where I think additive becomes a really interesting solution to the problem. Because I picture something that's highly complex. You know, like if my hand were the part, I could take a block of metal and I could lock my hand in with a vise on the sides and I could make all of this complexity with a drill bit. That side one, a computer can probably do that. Mm-hmm. But then, well, then what? I've got this still this chunk of metal that's being held by the vices. So a lot of people are, are toying around with this idea of tabbing where you actually just leave almost little support structure tabs and you break the part right off the top and you deburr it and it's done. And some people are doing incredible things there to solve the work holding problems. Hmm. But really the question then becomes, how do you, how do you flip it over and hold it? Like what holds that in place to take off the rest of that other side? So side two, solving those two problems in parallel will unlock enormous efficiency in manufacturing. Because today you can take a rod or a bar and you can send it into a saw. You can cut it to the right length. You can put it on a conveyor belt. You can clamp it in for side one. I mean, all it is, is you're putting a vise on a block, zero it out, and then cut the first side of the part. Like you can get there and Mm -hmm. it's pretty good. Like, (laughs) <laughs> There's tap testing where you'll actually go in and you'll hit the end of the drill bit and you can listen to the vibration and you know exactly what speed to run it at for what material you're cutting. I mean, it's there's really incredible technologies. Oak Ridge is by far leading the way in manufacturing technology. We are lucky to have that organization in this country. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. And we're going to see massive innovation there where people are saying, okay, well, additive is really cool because I can kind of just push the button and it goes and does its thing. But machining is doing the same thing now. And I don't have to worry about variability and there's no real risk because I'm cutting it out of a block of metal and that block of metal is cheaper. So I think additive, you know, this is a very, very long, probably unnecessarily long answer to your question of where additive fits, but additive is going to be a tool. And it's going to be a tool that, when properly applied, drives enormous efficiency. But just like any other tool in the tool chest, it's not going to be the only tool. And it probably isn't going to be the right tool for everything. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You know, maybe it doesn't justify some of the valuations that companies are getting today. And that's probably a podcast for another time. But it is going to be a tool. It's going to do really cool things. But I, I really, I think other manufacturing is sexy. Like I like punches, punching out sheet metal parts, you know, automated bending machines, laser cutters. I mean, there's some, there's some incredible technology. I mean, the YouTube videos are consuming. Yeah. Well, I wanted to end on a question related to that. And what's next for paperless parts and you, as you, you know, strive to bring manufacturing uh, in a more robust way back to America? So this has been a really cool journey for us. And I'm so fortunate that the company has been doing really well through COVID. I think the situation has highlighted the need for manufacturers to adopt more secure cloud-based modern technologies. So we're going to continue providing solutions to job shop manufacturers where software is never done. 
you know, it's funny. You start off and you're like, we'll build software for two, two years. And then we're going to go sell that software for 10 years. And it's just never done. We, we're, we're finding new things and new ways to make manufacturers more efficient. So we're going to keep going down that path. I think for me, it ends up with giving manufacturers the way, the best way to communicate their capabilities. Because what I'm seeing is in manufacturing, there used to be this term designed for manufacturability. And that is a very blanket term. Now you have DFAM, designed for additive manufacturability. But DFM was a term that was created when there was a very static level of manufacturing technology. Everybody had a Bridgeport mill. Everybody had the capability to produce, you know, with a round cutting tool. And, you know, there were some set rules in place. Well, as that technology has evolved dramatically, those rules are changing. And based on what you can do in your shop, that's what you really need to communicate to a generation of buyers that are in a very interesting, precarious position. Buyers Procurement is a target right now for Boeing and Lockheed. They want to like, decrease dollars spent on procurement. Well, they're taking a junior buyer, setting them behind high-powered software who's never been inside of a job shop, and it's a completely different scenario. I mean, it's very numbers-based. Take this part, quote me this part. Well, if you know where the most efficient place is to buy that, you're going to get the best price. And I think we can help our customers, the manufacturers, communicate that better. So that's definitely a big goal for us. That's great. Jason, thanks so much for making the time tonight. And to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us for another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Ben.